0: The History of Castlebar podcast is sponsored by MayoBooks.ie.
1: Hello and welcome to the History of Castlebar podcast. I'm Noel Campbell. And I'm John Healy. Each week we'll be discussing a selected chapter from our book, The History of Castlebar, which is available online from MayoBooks.ie or in-store in the Castle bookshop. This week we'll be looking at one of John's chapters from the book, Chapels and Churches. John, chapels and churches, quite an extensive Topic to talk about. Could you tell us to start? What do we know about the earliest Christian church in in what became Castlebar?
0: Well, I suppose, Noel, if we if we turn the clock back, we know that the, the first Christian church was a monastic settlement, and it was located on the slight hill overlooking Loch It's what we call now the old graveyard, the the mound over the over the lake. And of course, we must remember that at that time the town, as we know it now, didn't exist. The community settlement at Lachlanagh was the origins of the town. And it would be another 800 years before Barry would construct his castle down by down by the river. And several more centuries until the streets and the roads and the town dwellings began to, to take shape. So the first church, it would have been of wooden construction and later replaced by a stone building. Now, traces of that have been found particularly by Brona Gallagher in her own survey done some years ago. Now, I'd also add that up, up until very recent times, the lake was known locally as Church Lake. Even in my own time, it was always referred to as Church Lake. And the graveyard was referred to as the old churchyard, which would kind of confirm that, in other words, the oral history confirms the belief that that was where the first Christian church or post-Patrician church was was located. Now, with the Reformation and the suppression of the Catholic faith, that church was taken over by the Protestant faith. The church in the graveyard was taken over in 1603 or thereabouts, and it continued in use until 1739 when Christ Church was opened. continued in use, I should say, the Protestant church. The old church then was dismantled in 1739 And the local belief is that the stone was taken away and used in the buildings in Lawn House for Lord Lucan. So for over a hundred years, there was no Catholic church or indeed no Catholic clergy in Castlebar. But with the easing of the penal laws in 1800, that began to change. Father Dennis Egan became PP, the first PP for a century, in around 1797 or 1798. And he set about building what would become known as the Burn Church. I think officially it was Our Lady's Church, but it was always known as the Burn Church. And this was located between the present church and the monastery, where the car park is now of the, of the main church. And that's where the Burn Church was. It was a fairly basic building, stone flooring, no seating except along each wall. The congregation stood or knelt in the middle of the of the, the floor, women on one side, men on the other. Uh, there was an organ gallery. and laughed, all right, but that was it. The Earl of Lucan donated the first organ for the church and was present at the dedication. Now, Father McGee became PP in 1871, and his first objective was to replace the Barn Church. Now, the Barn Church, as you can imagine... It was built fairly quickly. It was in a fairly decrepit state after 70 years. And this idea of building a new, proper, modern church was fully backed by every section of the, of the community. And donations flowed in, and £2,000, which was a lot of money then, was collected in a very, very short space of time. One of the biggest benefactors was a man called Michael Quinn. Now, Michael Quinn was a wealthy landowner, And he also donated the site for the church. Now, this church was to be built across the road from the present church, where the parochial house now stands, the parish priest's house. So work got underway. A certain amount of money was raised. Work got underway. They thought that in order to reduce the cost, they wouldn't appoint a main contractor. So it was all done by subcontractor with a clerk of works in charge. proved not to be such a great idea in the end because progress was very slow but when the building reached roof height funds ran out and work had to stop money was scarce at that stage there was signs of another famine again you know there was a pandemic there was disease people were people just didn't have the money to to contribute to the continuation of the church so the church was abandoned, literally. It was left there for, I suppose, 20 years, exposed to the elements. Nothing happening, no money, and not a lot of, of push to get anything anything done, you know. And today, it's of course,
1: we have the fine Church of the Holy Rosary. Right. Uh, how yeah. did that come about? I mean, that, that was a, quite a, a, an architectural feat for the size was, of Castlebar.
0: It was a big... Not easily achieved, I'd say. And not easily achieved, and subject to a lot of... Controversy as well at the time, you know. Father McGee had been the PP who t- had started the Abandoned Church. At the time, it was called the McHale Church because Dr McHale, the Archbishop of Tewham, after whom McHale Park is named, turned the stone on the Abandoned Church, as I call it now. But Father Lyon succeeded Father McGee as PP in Castlebar. And in Chum, Dr McEverley succeeded McHale as the Archbishop of Tewham, there had been a long history of ill-feeling between the two of them. People felt that McKevley resented the fact that this was being called the McHale Church and it was felt that he didn't want to give McHale any credit for any church in Castlebar. So the result was that he eased up on the, the building of the church, didn't press Lyons to continue for a few years. So eventually... Father Lyons decided and made an announcement that, on architectural advice, the old church was no longer fit and that it would have to be completely dismantled and a new church would be built on the other side, where it is now, down close to the river. Of course, this caused uproar in the town. People had donated... First of all, people had donated money for what they thought was to be the McHale Church. And the second thing was that Michael Quinn who was the main benefactor and the main landowner in the town, felt aggrieved that his friend, Archbishop McCade, was going to be written out of history. So it led to a lot of acrimony. There was heated meetings. There was arguments in the street. Public meetings were held. Police were drafted in at weekends to keep the peace. The local papers took two sides. The Telegraph sided with Canon Lyons. The Western People sided with Michael Quinn, and this went on for several years until eventually Lyon said, look, that's it, I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to build this church, the new church, and that's it. So he did, he went away. The old church was dismantled stone by stone. The stones were brought across the road, incorporated into the new church, except for one stone, which remains to this day, if you look at the corner of the lawn of the priest's house. You'll see a circular column which was the last remaining piece of the old abandoned church. It's on, so it uh, was an extraordinary story. Uh, uh, to get
1: it to roof height and all that effort, and then, to, yeah. and then out of competition, essentially, Yeah,
0: it was to go down That's again. really what it was put down to in the end, that it was bitterness between the two prelates. And actually, the the, the church itself is it was meant to have a
1: steeple on it, was it? Or That's right, it was, yeah. yes,
0: and that never... Came Never came about. came about either,
1: yeah. I suppose yeah. it's very hard to go around to the houses again asking for money after, well, one, I think after the debacle they had seen
0: <laughs> with the two. <laughs> well, an interesting thing about it was that um, while this dispute was going on, uh, Ballantubber Abbey was being re-roofed and Sir John Power had given money for that. He was the benefactor for Bellantubber Abbey. And McKevley stepped in and he ordered that the funds from Bellantubber be diverted to Castlebar, at which stage power said, I won't give money to anybody. So they both, they both, lost, both Ballantummer and Castlebar lost out. The money was never paid up, yeah.
1: My yeah, goodness.
0: Yeah. Of course, the two big religions
1: in the town were, well, I suppose it was the Catholic Church, and then you had your Church of and Ireland Church of as well, Ireland, which was, yeah, so you mentioned some of the origins of the old Church of Ireland building up there.
0: That's true, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the oldest public building in the town, as you know, so... It was opened. It was opened for worship in 1739. In fact, the, the plaque to that is still on the wall inside the main gate, and it replaced that church of at Loch which had been there since since 1603. Up to 1804, Protestant burials took place in the grounds of Christ Church, but then Lord Lucan decided he'd donate a, a new Protestant graveyard, which is the one on the town side of the Tramore Street. Still there. It's still the Protestant graveyard, yeah. you know. But the remaining plots in the around the Christchurch were sold off to the gentry. So they could be buried inside the walls of Christchurch, whereas the mm. the rank and file had to go up. But the money was used, the money raised was used to repair the church, which had been badly damaged in 1798. Of course mm. it was and I think it was damaged in a storm some years afterwards. So th- the money was well spent. Or mm. it, was a, it was a wise move to, to do that, you know. Yeah, that's probably
1: a little known fact that that is the Protestant graveyard and people are still actually being,
0: being, buried. being buried. That, that is correct, yeah, yeah. to the present day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was recent, uh, last year, I think, was the most recent burial there. If anyone got
1: that. the opportunity to go into Christchurch as well. Very interesting inside all the plants and the history of the Bing- Binghams and... Uh, Yes, it's quite interesting.
0: Yeah, uh, of course
1: there was there was you know other other religions in the town, John. Like there were in most towns, you know those Presbyterians. Yeah. Well, you had Methodists the Presby- as well. What do we know of of those two? Yeah,
0: well the Presbyterians, yeah there was quite a bit, quite a, a large Presbyterian presence in the town. They would have come towards the end of the 1790s or maybe 1800. A number of Ulster families came to Turla, to the estate of, of Colonel Fitzgerald. Some of them actually had been United of the United Irishmen persuasion, strangely enough. And maybe that's why they came down south. I, I don't know. Mm. But they settled in Turla. There were Presbyterians and Episcopalians of both sect. So they wanted a minister for their own religion. And they asked Fitzgerald, would he fund a minister for the religion? Mm. He said he'd fund one, but not two. And he said he'd take a vote. So whichever was the... Strongest in the ballot box <laughs> would be the so the 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 Presbyterians had bigger numbers so he appointed a Presbyterian minister and he ministered in Turla for it was originally Turla Parish that didn't come into Castlebar much you see. they were based they were based in Turla in which there were I think maybe forty families in by eighteen twenty five I think there were forty families. In the church in the Presbyterian Church in Turla. Quite a lot. Quite a big number. Quite a big number. They were anxious to get into Castlebar, so eventually the rector of their church, Reverend Andrew Brown, conducted a service in the courthouse. I think that first service was held in 1854, and he did that every week for nearly 10 years. They were still looking for the premises in Castlebar. So a Dr. Christie, who owned property down at Lord Charles Street, offered his place to the church, and they bought it. And the foundation stone of a Presbyterian church was laid by a man called Henry Todd. Now, there was a very big company in Dublin called Todd Burns and Company. They were a retail shop, and this Henry Todd was one of the principals. He turned the sod on it. They built the church. It was called the Kirk Uh, It had a a manse on one side and around the corner in Richard Street, they had a small school. And that lasted, it was at its height while the Scottish regiments were stationed here, you see, because they would come to the Kirk Mm. every Sunday for service. It was always a big occasion, you know, parading through the town and that sort of thing. When they left, sort of the numbers fell off and eventually they decided they'd sell off the property. So a Mr. Ryan bought it in 19... 23. He bought the whole lot the church and the manse and the the school and he lived there with his family until the 1940s and he sold it again. It was divided up then to, into private residences and sold but the Kirk became, Kirk became a lot of things. It was a dancing school it was a boxing club yes. it was an auction room for furniture yeah. Brian Morden's father ran auctions there. It was a a workshop for Paddy McDonald, the building contractor, yeah, Sean yeah. McDonald's father, and eventually it became an art gallery owned by Paddy McGuinness. and now it's the Tulsi restaurant. restaurant. So it has gone the full the full gamut from a house of worship to an Indian restaurant yeah. with a lot of a lot of stages in between. Yeah. You
1: know, I remember the excitement uh, when the McDonald one opened up. People thought it was uh, kids of our age thought this was McDonald's coming, to the <laughs> yes. <A> different McDonald. <laughs>
0: A different McDonald's, completely, exactly. exactly. And, and, and,
1: and the John Wesley connection with Castlebar, he's a strong connection, of course, to That's the That's right, it was a strong
0: connection, yeah, yeah. Um, Wesley visited Ireland, you know, many, many times. Uh, and he was particularly friendly with the Brown family in Rehens. He used to stay with the Browns when he'd visit Ireland. And in 1785, he turned, he laid the foundation stone for the Methodist church, on on the mail, and it said that it was the only he had been in, in, in Ireland twenty or twenty one times, which was the only time. It's the only church that he had laid the foundation stone. Funny enough, I don't know what what coincidence that was, but uh, yeah, it was it was a, a fine church, and unusually, it had a manse residence beside it, mm-hmm. plus a walled garden. I think you, you might see the walled, mm or our footballs used to Absolutely, win when we'd play yeah. on, them, <laughs> on the man and we weren't able to retrieve them. And it was, they had very good relations with the Church of Ireland because the minister, Wesley was invited up by Ellison to preach in the Church of Ireland and the Methodist Church was made available to the Church of Ireland community when repairs were being carried out in, in the church. But just a couple of things about it. One was that they were always harassed by Young boys playing football and hurling while service was on, mm. uh, with the result that they had to petition the urban council several times to bring in a law to prevent this ball play in Jordan to service. And the second thing was that there was a court case where two young fellows were prosecuted for playing pitch and toss, just you know on the steps as you go up from Rock Square. Yes, yeah, they were playing pitch and toss while divine service was being held inside. <laughs> at <laughs> they were severely censured and given the Probation Act and told not to play any more pitch and toss. While the oh, What kind of a racket could have been created with a few coins or whatever they were playing well, with? Well, I suppose there might have been a lot of Yahoo <laughs> and and cheering <laughs> when the two heads had come up or whatever it had been. But eventually in 1985, I think, no, earlier than that, I think maybe ni- the Reverend Crawford was the last one sorry, Reverend Farley was the last one, and he left in 1958. I just vaguely remember him myself. He was uh, um, he was appointed to Westport and Castlebar, and he left, and the building was, first of all, it was leased to the VEC, I think. It became a tourist office, an art centre. It was let to the Mayo County Council, and of course now it has been, it's in use again as a Church of Worship, the Church of Christian Fellowship, are back in there again. But in 1985, there was a ceremony, a small celebration. Mary Farrell was the curator there at the time, and was a small celebration just to mark the bicentenary of the, of the building. And Frank O'Reilly, the, my neighbour on the Newport Road, constructed a model of the town of Castle Mar in 1785, which was put on display. Don't know where that is now, but it'd be interesting to know. But uh, to great acclaim, it was a big, big occasion, big occasion. But yeah, that was the story of that. If anyone knows where that model is, it'd be nice to get her.
1: Wouldn't it be nice to get our hands on it? Wouldn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. My, uh, and and of course, that the Methodist Church there would have been the centre of all of that.
0: Of all of it, yeah, yes.
1: Around yeah. the barracks and the courthouse, etc. That's true. That's you know, true. was a just, busy
0: part of town yeah. as it is today. Yeah. Just to go back to Christchurch again. I don't think any of the, none of the Lucans are buried in Castlebar, but their predecessors, the Binghams, are. Mm. And there's a memorial tablet to Sir Henry Bingham. It's already, it's in the the Christ Church. He died in 1714. And the inscription reads, in a vault near this place lieth Sir Henry Bingham. Now, where this, near this place, not, well, of course, the church wasn't there when the tablet was made, but. Where is the nearest place? Was it up in the military barracks or out in the grounds? Was it up in the great old graveyard, Yeah, yeah. That's something I suppose. For it'd be interesting to get, to get in for another and, day, uh, yeah. Start
1: rubbing chalk on tombstones and seeing just to seeing see what names come up there. Yeah. Well, he's yeah. obviously in the vicinity. He's given us the first clue, so it's a matter <laughs> of going out and getting them. But it is yeah. very interesting, and there was a great, great photo. I think I think it's in the Wind Collection of. A, it must have been a service just starting, where obviously the Bingham's got the front seats and it shows some of the, those attending the service in Christchurch, just looking back to the door, really? I think it was when that really? took that picture. Right, right, and you yeah. can see them all starting in very small numbers, of course, so it must be the, kind of the dying ages of the ascendancy. Yeah. And
0: uh, Well, even to this day, the the, the the top pew in the church has a place saying Earl of Lucan. That was his. Even today, you
1: know. Do we know, is there anything left of, you know, the churches are usually reused... Especially some of the more uh, more cherished
0: possessions of a church
1: was anything. Does anything exist from the barn church? Barn church did move into the church of the Holy Rosary crucifixes or anything.
0: All of the material and the the, the sacred instruments from the church were moved over. It would make sense. Yeah, yeah, were moved eventually into the into the new church. The barn church continued actually, while the while the abandoned church remained abandoned. The barn church was still in use until the new church church of the Holy Rosary which happened in 19, 1901.
1: Thanks, John. That's a very interesting insight into the several denominations that operated here in Castlebar. Before we go to an ad break, we're going
0: to take a look at an ad from the past. John, you found an interesting one for us. Well, this one, Noel, comes from March of 1956 and it was, it's an ad in the Connacht Telegraph issued by the Department of Posts and Telegraphs. It's headed, Unlicensed Wireless Sets... Warning, in big black type, in view of the evasion which is believed to be taking place still in the payment of wireless licence fees, it has been decided to conduct an intensive nationwide campaign against holders of unlicensed wireless sets, beginning on Monday next, the 5th of March, 1956. Holders of unlicensed sets are urged in their own interests to take out licenses immediately as it is intended to prosecute every offender discovered during this campaign. A license may be obtained at any post office at a cost of seventeen shillings and sixpence issued by the Department of Posts and Telegraphs. So in this age of mobile phones and ready made radios, this is a, a really a blast from the past. Absolutely. Said. I do know because uh, I knew some of the people who were involved. Some of the bus office officials, whose job it was to go around and look at, <laughs> look for licenses, that they'd let the word be known beforehand that we'll be around on Monday down this road and Tuesday. So it was a warning to the. It's Something similar, it's similar to you'd, what you'd see
1: nowadays with the uh, TV license. They give a much little, the same thing. A little
0: much, ad on the. To say we're coming. Yeah, that they were coming around, coming yeah. I, I've yet to see anyone who who has the knock on the door, but anyways, <laughs> the, the fear is <laughs> instilled in people. I had, a, there was a relation of mine was, worked in the post office, his job was to go around, but there was a man prosecuted for not having a license, but my friend went in and gave evidence that, in fact, he was only tampering what appeared to be a Phillips radio that didn't appear to be working well, uh, at which case your man got off with the, a severe warning from the bench, but I presume that he took out a radio, radio licence immediately after that. But that's an interesting an interesting sign of the times. The Connacht Telegraph, serving the community since 1828 and now reaching 1.5 million people per month on our online and print platforms.
1: Since opening our doors in 2017, Bridge Street has evolved into a community hub a bar, meeting place and event space for locals and visitors to Castlebar. With weekly music sessions and performances of all genres, including a monthly Bridge of Song showcase of up-and-coming singer-songwriters, Bridge Street
0: Castlebar keeps her lit.
1: We'd like to invite listeners to submit any comments or questions or suggestions for discussion on the podcast. You can contact us at historyofcastlebar at gmail.com. And, of course, we'd welcome all input from our listeners. We have a query in from a John Fahey, and it's quite a broad one and quite interesting. Now that uh, an Earl of Lucan is back in place, John, will we ever see a
0: return of the Earl? A return to Castelbarra? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think the present Earl lives in Australia. Would I be right on that? I think I read that somewhere, that the present holder of the title... Is at the moment in Australia. But I think that he did visit Castlebar not so long ago. I don't know what pub he came to, but I I didn't come across him. But I'm told on good authority that he did visit the town with a couple of friends. I don't know, did he make his identity all that well known? But yeah, I'd imagine that given the right circumstances, maybe if there's a book on Lord Lucan in the offing, he might just come back for a uh, for the launch of that. What would you think? He might come back for that, or he might come back for ground rates. Of course, I mean the ground
1: <laughs> rent's still here in town. To still there, it yeah, and they're still being collected. The, so the, I believe the current one is yeah. the, the the eighth Earl of Lucan, who's George Bingham, uh, a relatively young man who had a hard time uh, convincing the, the the courts over there that his his father. Was, his father was dead. Was dead. Okay. Even though nobody, yeah. of course, has been retrieved, and he is finally uh, is finally entitled to call himself the eighth Earl. Um, I don't what I don't I think he's only in his fifties, he's quite a, a young man. So, um, as far as I know, the, the rents are still being collected, probably a very small fee, very small. Yes, uh, I think so, but they're yeah. still there. Will we see him come back to town? I'm not sure. What kind of a reception would he get? <laughs> Just going to ask
0: you that question, would there be a welcome for him
1: in all could this, we... in all this Will and Kate frenzy? Could we make them out? Uh, are we going to make it? That's <laughs> true. <laughs> or, yeah, George yeah. and his wife, th- maybe there the, would the be a welcome
0: for. <laughs> Well, the, I suppose the, their history was so varied. You know, you had, you know, a very oppressive Lord Lucan, and then you had a very benign Lord yeah. Lucan. So that's very true. Yeah, you know, he, the, the
1: fourth Earl did a lot to make up for the a, the third Earl's. Oh, absolutely. Uh, harshness yeah. and bad yeah, he treatment. Was most
0: of, generous to, to most generous to the town. So yeah, yeah, we would look forward to seeing him. Noel, we'll see. On behalf
1: of myself and John, I'd like to thank the listeners again for tuning into our podcast. And just a gentle reminder that, of course, our book can be bought online at mayobooks.ie or in-store in the Castle Bookshop. John and I will be back again for our next episode, which will deal with Days of Revolution, 1914 to 1921 in Castlebar. We look forward to your listenership
0: then. The History of Castlebar podcast is sponsored by mayobooks.ie. The series is produced by me, Brendan Gilmartin. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend and leave a review.